Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you that you did show mercy to your people, that you did not destroy them all for this great sin. Help us this morning to pause and think seriously in front of your word, keeping in mind that you are not only a God of wrath, but you are also the God of mercy who forgives, as we will celebrate later. Help us to think clearly and calmly in your presence this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, we looked at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. We saw there that God alone is the one who is to be the source of our comfort, our hope, our meaning, and our courage. And when we worship God in that way, that shapes our entire lives so that we become more like he wants us to be. This week, we turn our attention to the second commandment, and the question that immediately arises is, how are the first and second commandments related to each other? It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. So what is the connection between the first and the second? Uh, is it a repetition? Or perhaps did we count wrong, and there's really only nine commandments? Uh, what's going on here? Well, the solution, I think, is to say is that the second commandment builds on the first commandment, but adds something very precise to it, perhaps and adds something more that wasn't really mentioned in the first commandment. And to see that clarification, we have to look at Exodus 32, the story that was just read for us. It's a very, very sad story. Uh, I'm sure we're all, our hearts are filled with grief when we read, read that commandment, this story of the golden calf, but we need to think about that story to see the point of the second commandment. Now, to understand the debacle of the golden calf, we must notice not only what was done, but also then look at what was said specifically. But what was done? Uh, there's an interesting history of art related to the second commandment. For centuries, artists have loved to paint pictures of what they think was going on here. And we see something from that history. Many of the artists have focused their attention on the use of sex in worship related to the second commandment. The pictures, some of them, of what was happening at the golden calf are of the people worshiping naked and paired off. And of course, in the ancient world, uh, in the idolatry of the ancient world, sometimes sex was a part of the worship of the idols. The other thing that was often part of the worship of the idols was a great emotional frenzy. So people would work themselves up into a strange, some kind of ecstasy, and usually with the intention to try to get the attention of the gods, to convince the gods to listen to them. And so if they were in some state of ecstasy and frenzy, they hoped uh, God, the gods would listen to them. But notice, and that all, all this is foreign to the Bible, the, the frenzy and the use of sex and worship. But notice what was said. In verse 4, it says, Aaron took what they had handed him, the, the gold jewelry, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And then Aaron went on to say, Tomorrow there will be a, be a festival to the Lord. They were mixing. They were mixing what God had done for them, taking them out of Egypt, but worship taking that story and applying it to this golden calf. So it was a mixing of 
the story of what God had done, but it's giving credit to this calf, this idol. Now, of course, worshiping a calf or a bull was common in Egypt or in Canaan. Uh, there were different varieties of bulls and calves that people worshiped, and there were different myths that were attached to the different calves and bulls that people worship. And I don't have them all straight, the different stories and the different types of calves and bulls that were worshipped. But one of the things that's most interesting is that this was very flexible. That uh, they could change the names of the gods from generation to generation, and they could also change what story was credited to which god. That's what's going on here. What God had done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he had done is credited to this calf. And of course, the people of Israel, many of them, probably had been worshiping a calf, something like this, in Egypt. Uh, they were going back to what they knew before they came to faith and saying, this bull or steer or calf, whatever it was, uh, that did what God did. And, and that was the sin, crediting what God had done to an idol and mixing in that way, mixing the worship of the God of the Bible with an idol just like they had done before, mixing the gods together and taking one story from one god and accrediting it to another. God did not like to be treated that way. They mixed the acts of the true God with the worship of their old calf god. They insulted God. And apparently, it was mostly some Levites who did not go along with it. Ah, the God of Abraham does not like to be treated like a calf god. He does not like Syncretism. The word that uh, scholars use to describe this is religious syncretism, in case it helps you. So the enduring purpose of this commandment is that God wants the worship of those people, the worship of us, to be unmixed with idolatry, unmixed with worship of some other god or gods that we had in the past. They came to believe in the God of the Bible through the Exodus, Probably many of these people had heard some of the stories, but there had not been much of a faith till that point. And they didn't really leave it behind very well until this point at the golden calf. God wants a pure and unmixed faith and worship and religion. God does not want us to be, as it were, syncretistic and picking something from Christianity and something from other sources to make up our own mix. Now, the problem of religious syncretism in the Old Testament did not end after this golden calf event. Now, in some of the idolatry in the Old Testament, the people of God replaced God with an idol. That is one type of idolatry. But in other types of idolatry in the Old Testament was this mixing, that they mixed the idols from the countries around with themes or ideas or stories about the God of the Bible. Uh, for example, there was another clear case that sounds almost like the golden calf story we have here. Uh, perhaps six or seven hundred years later, something like that, uh, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel in the north, when Israel separated from Judah in the south, when they became two kingdoms, Jeroboam didn't want the people from the northern country going down to Jerusalem to cross the border to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So he set up two golden calves, one up in the north part of the country, but one in the south part of the country. Sounds just about like what Aaron did here hundreds of years before. And Jeroboam said just about the same thing. These are your gods, O Israel, who took you out of the land of Egypt. So this kind of mixing didn't end 
after the golden calf incident. It went on and sometimes uh, more or less repeated this. I know an American man who was living in Central Asia with his American wife. We were once with them in the same church. That's how we came to know them. Now, in this country where they were living in Central Asia, there is a local custom that sometimes men take a second wife. Uh, the, The American woman traveled a little bit for her job. And one time she had traveled for her work and came home to discover that her husband had taken a second local wife, who happened to be about the same age as their daughters. I mention that because then you know what jealousy looks like. Her scream of jealousy, I think, was heard just about around the world. Uh, The amazing thing is that she did not murder him. Uh, and it was probably just because she didn't want to go to jail herself. Now, I tell you that story so you see what jealousy is about. She did not want to be one of the wives. She wanted to be the wife. God does not want to be one of the gods. God wants to be God, period. That's what this is about. That's how we have to be in relationship to God. He wants us to have him as the one God, not to be one of our gods. Now, the problem of religious syncretism, mixing in themes from all over the globe with people's biblical faith, did not end even with the Old Testament. It continued on for a long time, and it continues today. It did not end with the New Testament. With the coming of Jesus and even with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this problem of mixing different faiths together did not end. And in the New Testament, there are at least three types of religious syncretism that are addressed in the New Testament. One of them was getting the mix with Judaism wrong. A second was including sorcery or magic with worship. And a third is what we might call Greek or Hellenistic dualism. I'll try to explain all these. In the time of the New Testament, a recurring theme was what would be the connection between their faith in Jesus and the Old Testament and Judaism? And it was, took a while to get that straight. Obviously, the New Testament Christians followed Jesus and saying, yeah, we... Jesus was a Jew. We take over a whole lot of what Jews had to say. We take over the scriptures from the Jews. Uh, But how do we get the the mix right? The problem arose when some Christians in the time of the New Testament said, well, to be a good Christian, you have to follow some Jewish rules, particularly circumcision and food rules. So in order to be a good Christian, you had to first do these Jewish practices, circumcision and get the food rules right. And then some said, and this is in order to be saved. You cannot go to heaven if you don't follow the Jewish food rules, if you don't practice circumcision. Now, the early church responded and said, no, no, that's all wrong. Uh, And there was a big council to talk about it, and several New Testament letters deal with it. And the, the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, addressed a deeper issue that was related very closely. He said... For Paul, the issue was not only these rules, but any rules that someone might want to do to be saved, that's just not the way it is. Salvation is by justification alone. And Paul, when writing this, used some very strong terms. 
he said in Galatians 3, Oh, you foolish Galatians! A very direct rebuke, because they got the mix between Christianity and Judaism wrong. They were believing in Jesus, but they got the wrong part of Judaism into the mix, not the right part of Judaism. That stands as a warning. So, but there's another kind of syncretism that's also addressed in the Bible, and this is the mixing of biblical faith with sorcery. Uh, there seem to have been different types of sorcery or magic that were used across the Middle Eastern world where the Christians lived. I'm not sure I have all those different types of sorcery and magic straight in my mind. Maybe we don't need to. But I'll mention just one example where this is addressed in the New Testament. When the gospel went north from Jerusalem into the area called Samaria, where they had a different language and a different religious background, some, one of the people who was converted to Christ was the local sorcerer. His name was Simon. And soon the apostles, or two of the apostles, John and Peter, went up to Samaria to pray for the people that they could receive the Holy Spirit. They did. The people received the Holy Spirit after Peter and John prayed for them. When Simon saw this, he said this. This is recorded in Acts 8. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And Peter added, repent of this wickedness. Simon wanted to keep his old role from the previous religion. He was the sorcerer. Wouldn't it be nice if he could continue on as the Christian sorcerer and doing this kind of thing in Christian circles? The answer was absolutely no. The biblical faith cannot be merged with sorcery, magic, other such practices. The New Testament says no, not at all. Simon was called to repent. Some, some of us probably have a background that includes things a little bit like that. Probably some of us have a little bit of witchcraft or sorcery or something like that in the background. That's common around the world. It didn't end with the first century. If so, we have to give that up. That's a mix that is specifically prohibited here in the New Testament. It's a type of syncretism that God does not want. But there's a third type of syncretism, mixing with other religions, that's mentioned in the New Testament and clearly addressed. And this is the mix with Greek or Hellenistic dualism. The place where we see this is in 1 John chapter 4. I'll read a few verses there. John wrote to the Christians, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the spirit of Christ. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not recognize Jesus is not from God. The problem was some people were saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And that was a distinctive type of mixing of the biblical message with another worldview or religion. You see, many in the Greek world uh, followed what I'm just calling dualism, saying that what's, everything that is spiritual and unseen is good, but the physical world is evil. Now, there were several varieties of, of that. If you want to learn more, 
There's a chapter about that in my book on the Trinity, and you can find it online. But the key point is that the dualists said that what's spiritual and unseen is good, what is physical and seen that you can touch is evil. And therefore, Jesus could not come in the flesh and become a real human being. He could only seem to be human, look something like a human being, not really be a human whom you could see and touch and hear and even smell. That was a mixing of biblical faith with dualism. Now, there were many types of dualism. Uh, and just as the polytheism of the ancient world just about overwhelmed the people of God in the Old Testament, so the different types of dualism just about overwhelmed the people of God for a couple centuries. It was from the year 100 to 300. It was a constant theme in the churches that they were just half of them, sometimes seemed like more than half of them, were more or less dualists, not really following the biblical message. Slowly, the church began to develop a, develop a three-part strategy to respond to this dualism that was overwhelming the church. And we see this if we read the Christian books written between about 150 and 325. A small part of this strategy was who's who in Christianity. Uh, because Christians were not sure what they should believe, they would say, well, we learned the gospel from so-and-so, and he learned the gospel from so-and-so, and he learned the gospel from the Apostle John. A little bit of who's who helped them figure out who might have the message right about what Christianity was. The second thing, part of the strategy of the church to respond to dualism was to develop the canon of the Bible. That means the list of what books are to be included in the Bible. The decision was made very early that because Jesus followed the Hebrew Bible, what the Jews read at his time, that became the Christian Old Testament. So the Hebrew Bible rather automatically became the Christian Old Testament. But then the question of, well, what books should make up the New Testament? And there was a little bit of uncertainty. How would they know? The decision that the early church seemed to have all followed pretty much is that they would if a book was written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle, then that would be recognized as an authoritative book and come to be included in the New Testament. Now, there was a little bit of uncertainty in this process. Uh, there were some books that people were not quite sure about. For example, not everyone was sure if 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John and Jude should be in the New Testament. Some people said yes, some people said no. Finally, everyone seemed to say yes. Uh, but this process of, of recognizing what books made up the Bible was a part of their response to dualism. How? Well, if someone just read the first chapter of Genesis, or the first two or three chapters of Genesis, they would see that God was the creator of everything seen and unseen. God was the one who created this world, visible and invisible parts, the spiritual part of the world, the physical part of the world, and God was the one who made it good. Just that first few chapters of Genesis would break the dualistic control of the church. But the various dualists in the church usually did not have very much to do with the New Testament either. They would quote Paul occasionally, perhaps quote one of the four Gospels, but to have four Gospels that all told about the life of Jesus in the flesh that gave the life of Jesus the physical 
presence of Jesus of much greater importance. And that began to break the control of this dualistic frame of mind on Christians. So they're developing the canon. But the third part of the response to the overwhelming power of dualism was the, the Apostles' Creed. Now, the precise wording of the Apostles' Creed was not 100% consistent across the early churches, but by the year 100, many, many Christian churches already had a creed that they used that was recognizably very similar to what we call the Apostles' Creed today. There was a little difference in this line or that line, but it was very similar. The, the, these creeds and all the churches were very similar to each other. All of them talked about the Trinity. All of them talked about the work of Jesus being born and dying and rising again. And uh, this was short enough that someone could memorize it. Uh, in that time in the early church, most of the Christians could not read. So most of them did not have Bibles. If they did, they could not read it because very few people could read. But the creed, the Apostles' Creed, was short enough that even an illiterate person could memorize it. That was the tremendous advantage. They would have a summary of some of biblical teaching, the core things that Christians believe, just in the, these few simple sentences that they could memorize. And it was used when people were baptized or when people were uh, coming into membership of the church. And that played a decisive role in breaking the role of dualism because the Apostles' Creed confesses that God the Father Almighty made everything he is the creator of everything seen and unseen. He created what's visible and what's invisible. And Jesus really became a human who was in this world, born, suffered, died, and was resurrected, putting a tremendous emphasis on Jesus being in this world, and that played a decisive role in breaking this dualism. Now, this broader problem of joining biblical faith with something from somewhere else did not end after the New Testament. It did not end after Christians more clearly accepted the understanding of God as Trinity. It has gone on and on and on. I don't have time to tell the story at length. But a couple of important examples of more recent times where we have seen a terrible mixing of biblical faith with unbiblical faith was during World War II. There were many Christians who mixed Christianity and National Socialism. It's a terrible problem. If we go back and read what those people say, some of us, could, you could hardly believe that Christians would say those things, but they did. But another one that's been dominant across Europe and North America for the last 350 years is a mixing of biblical faith with deism. Again, that would be a story worth telling on another occasion. But the key point to see is that repeatedly, almost consistently, perhaps almost continually, believers have faced this problem of mixing a new found biblical faith, or sometimes an old biblical faith, with themes or stories that come from somewhere else. And that is just plain wrong. God does not want to be one of the gods. He does not want what he has done for us in creating us and redeeming us does not want that credited to some other God. God wants to be God alone. We must not mix our faith in God with something else. Now, given our topic of using idols in worship, 
I think I should say something, make some suggestions about how we as Christians should face the arts, the visual arts. I'm thinking here of pictures and sculptures. Uh, I'll just try to articulate a few principles that I think are consistent with the commandment we read here. First is we should not make pictures or sculptures of God. Of course, there are very few accounts in the Bible where someone saw God. Uh, Isaiah, a couple others. Uh, but they did not afterwards write a, did not draw a picture. They did not make a sculpture of God. They only told the story of being attracted to God but frightened by his holiness, of recognizing their need for forgiveness. They did not make an image of God. So we should not either. It was not very many. It was a very, very small number who ever had a vision of God. But second, art portraying Jesus. Of course, we've probably all seen art that portrays Jesus somewhere or another. And he was God incarnate in a real physical body. But when we look at the art that portrays Jesus, there's a recurring problem to notice in that the Jesus is often portrayed as an ideal representative of the culture of the artist. So if we see art portraying the man Jesus written by, uh, coming from a Middle Eastern uh, artist, he's likely to have dark skin and dark hair. If we see art portraying Jesus that comes from a Northern European background, he's liable to have blonde hair and blue eyes. When we have any art that portrays Jesus, it's very, very easy for people to describe Jesus as an ideal person from their society. We have to be real careful about that. Um, and many of the art portraying Jesus only shows him as a baby or on a cross. It neglects the resurrection. It tends to neglect him coming as the judge of the living and the dead. So be real careful about art that portrays Jesus. The Holy Spirit seems to be a little bit different because in the Bible, the Holy Spirit has already selected some ways by which he represents himself. We see the Holy Spirit represented as a dove, as fire, as wind in the Bible. And so if we try to portray the Holy Spirit artistically, I think we have to be careful that it's following the suggestions and really directives for that we find in the Bible. Maybe it should be done sometimes. But then the use of art and architecture in worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was extensive artwork that went into the temple and went into the tabernacle before that. We were even given the names of some of the artists who did that, who made it. Uh, art in worship was very extensive, visual art. The architecture, the, everything in the mid that's place so special, that was a big part of worship in the Old Testament. Maybe that should have a little bit bigger role for us today, that use the visual arts in worship. But finally, I should mention Virgin Mary art. Probably all of us have seen artwork that portrays Mary, the mother of Jesus. And again, I would suggest we have to be a little bit careful here. A lot of this art portrays Mary as the ideal woman from the culture of the artist. Uh, it may have very little to do with the real Jewish Mary, mother of Jesus, from 2,000 years ago. And some of the Mary art seems to cross a line and come too close to worshiping Mary. 
I've been in numerous Catholic churches, and I wondered if the art portraying Mary was a little too close to worship. Uh, we should be more cautious there. But that's not something to talk about here. That's something to talk about mostly with our uh, Roman Catholic counterparts. But be very careful of Virgin Mary art. Uh, there's, it's not without some risk. I believe that we, as Christians today, need to be very, very careful about mixing our biblical faith with themes, stories, practices that come from other religions and other worldviews. This happened in the Old Testament tragically with the golden calf. It recurred repeatedly in the Old Testament. There was this mixing going on in the New Testament that had to be addressed time and again in different ways. We, too, have to be very, very careful about that. If we're going to see our churches, our Christian lives, flourishing and strong, we have to try the best we can to overcome this mixing of faiths. Because the Apostles' Creed has been one of the sources the church has used to do this for centuries, I would like us now to stand up and use body and mouth and soul and mind to confess our faith in God. Should be coming up on the overhead here. So join with me uh, in confessing who our triune God is and what he has done. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he shall come as judge and dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the union of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated.